0: As you are aware, and as we just did a moment ago, uh, as a church, during most of our worship services, we will have a moment of uh, personal, corporate confession. There will be a moment in worship where uh, I bid you to seek repentance, and we will pray together about our sin and our need for forgiveness uh, why do we do that? Well, it's on the basis of uh, the book of James, confess your sins one to another and be healed. It's on the basis of a number of uh, of the Psalms of David, where David confesses his sins, but he's written it as a psalm, which means that the church is going to sing it together. So those psalms actually are corporate confessions of sin, and then you also see uh, men like Moses or men like Nehemiah, uh, men like uh, Daniel. They, they pray prayers of corporate repentance. And so on those basis, uh, we Protestants include a corporate confession of sin. <laughs> The Anglican Church has a corporate confession of sin. Uh, the The bidding to that is kind of interesting. We've actually had this here as well. Normally, I'll say, you know, come, let us confess our sins to Almighty God. But the reformers in England felt that there needed to be a little bit more added to that. When the minister invited people to come and confess their sins, uh, there might be some cutouts here that needed dealt with. And so, in morning prayer, uh, this is what the minister will often say. No, not always. There's a shorter little bid to repentance, but uh, the longer one, and the one that's considered normative, is this. Dearly beloved brethren, The scripture moveth us in sundry places to acknowledge and confess our manifold sins and wickednesses, and that we should not dissemble nor cloak them before the face of Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, but confess them with an humble, lowly, penitent, and obedient heart to the end that we may obtain forgiveness of the same by his infinite goodness and mercy. And although we ought at all times humbly to acknowledge our sins before God, yet ought we chiefly so to do when we assemble and meet together to render thanks for the great benefits that we have received at His hands, to set forth His most worthy praise, to hear His most holy word, and to ask those things which are requisite and necessary as well for the body as the soul. Wherefore, I pray and beseech you, as many as here are present, to accompany me with a pure heart and humble voice unto the throne of the heavenly grace, saying... And then you have your prayer of confession. It's wordy, I admit, but it covers a lot of bases, and it bids you into a a humble estate before God, which you are going to be standing before, and you confess your sins in the light of this this bidding. There's a line in it that really... uh, The language is perfect. We should not dissemble nor cloak them, that is our sins, before the face of Almighty God. What are the reformers in England telling us not to do? We should not dissemble nor cloak our sins. We've come into God's presence as as a church. We're getting ready to confess our sins. No dissembling, no cloaking. Well, cloaking is pretty easy. Uh, If you cloak your sins, you just hide them. So you come into God's presence and you hope God didn't notice and you don't mention these. But what about dissembling? No dissembling of your sins when you come into God's presence. What does that mean? Well, it means making them look like things that they really aren't. It's um, putting a positive spin on things. If anyone remembers Lake Wobegon, the author of those books and that radio show was a guy by the name of Garrison Keillor. And Garrison Keillor actually wrote a prayer of confession for the mainline church of today that would fit the theology of it better Than all these stodgy, reformed, reformational prayers, it went something like this. O Lord God, though it may seem unto thee that we have done some things which thou might find to be questionable, we beseech thee to consider such things from our point of view and to give us the benefit of the doubt, for it is not as bad as thou thinkest. In the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, it's a joke, but it gets to the heart of what dissembling your sins really is about. If you dissemble your sins, you try to make them not sins, effectively, or at least kind of, uh, kind of make them look better. And so the reformer said, "Don't do that. When you come before God's presence, you're coming before the God who knows everything." You can't cloak your sins from him, and you can't make him look better either. So don't do that. Rather come with a lowly, humble, and contrite heart, etc. Well, dissembling is an interesting phenomenon, and it is not simply limited to our prayer life. Uh, dissembling can happen in our religious life in a lot of ways. Um... When, when I was a child, I grew up in a family that had a father who had been ordained in the Disciples of Christ, but he became a dean of safety at Eastern, and when he discovered that his boss was actually attending the United Methodist Church in Richmond, uh, suddenly we stopped going to the Disciples of Christ, and we suddenly became Methodists. It's not exactly like my father had seen the Wesleyan light or anything, but that's what he would have said. It would be dissembling. It was for a totally different purpose, but it was an act of religiosity. I mean, we were going to church every Lord's Day, but not exactly for the purposes that we were saying. Um, When I was pastoring in Iowa, There was a family that would not come to church except during a season when we were leaving the PCUSA, and there's all kinds of media and and, uh, big fighting kind of stuff. They actually came for a couple of Sundays, but they wanted to come because they wanted to watch a fight. They thought that there would be, you know, big media type stuff. And when that turned out not to be the case, they stopped coming to church again, again, I don't know if they would have told you that that was the reason for the religiosity, but it's a matter of dissembling. The truth is, it's the Lord's Day, and 19% of Kentucky is seated in a church today. Why are they there? Uh, Well, some of them there are to worship God, without doubt. In fact, one hopes that that's the majority. But one would have to be kind of naive to believe that's why all of them are there. The truth is, there's probably lots of reasons why they have come into God's presence, but they're not going to give most of those reasons at the door. It's dissembling. Well, as we begin our passage, we see a classic example of dissembling. The... Feeding in the 5,000 has taken place. The people who ate get up in the morning and they look around and say, okay, the boats are gone, but we know that Jesus didn't leave on the boat. Where to he go? I don't know. Most likely places, Capernaum. John tells us in verse 24 and 25 that they are seeking Jesus. And in fact, they're going to use very positive-sounding language. When the people, therefore, saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. So, supposed to seek Jesus? Yeah, you're supposed to seek Jesus. know where he is, they go to the most likely place, Capernaum, they're looking for him. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Rabbi in Jewish culture is actually a term of respect and honor. Um, when I was pastoring in Iowa, among the Dutch, there was actually a tradition that you would call your minister dominus, which is Latin for Lord. And let me tell you, getting called Lord is kind of a power trip. I didn't actually like it, but that was the tradition you call the minister dominate. Well, calling someone rabbi in this culture is kind of similar. It's uh, exalted teacher. It is religious authority. And so John pictures this group of people coming to Jesus. They've been looking for him, seeking Jesus. We want people to seek Jesus. They use the language rabbi. When did you get here? You would think Jesus of Nazareth would feel honored, except Jesus is not just Jesus of Nazareth. He is also the second person of the Trinity, of whom we read in the second chapter of this gospel, these words. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. That sounds very positive, right? We want people to believe in Jesus. Well, many believe in his name. When they saw the signs which he did, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in a man. Rabbi, we've been looking for you. Rabbi, how'd you get here? Uh, we honor you. We, we, we came because you know, you're important to us. And the Son of God, who knows everything, says to them, And Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. That has the feeling of a slap, and it should. Jesus knows. The Son of God knows. You can't dissemble with him. He looks straight to the heart. J.C. Ryle, in preaching on this passage, had this to say. We should mark first in this passage what knowledge of man's heart our Lord Jesus Christ possesses. We see him exposing the false motives of those who followed him for the sake of the loaves and fishes they had followed him across the lake of galilee they seemed at first sight ready to believe in him and do him honor but he knew the inward springs of their conduct and was not deceived ye seek me he said not because ye saw the miracles but because ye did eat of the loaves that were filled the lord jesus we should never forget is still the same He never changes. He reads the secret motives of all who profess and call themselves Christians. He knows exactly why they do all they do in their religion. The reasons why they go to church and why they receive the sacrament, why they attend family prayers and why they keep Sunday holy, all are naked and open to the eyes of the great head of the church. By him, actions are weighed. As well as seen, man looketh on the outward appearance; the Lord looketh on the heart. Let us be real, true, and sincere in our religion. Whatever else we are, the sinfulness of hypocrisy is very great. But it is folly. But its folly is greater still. It is not hard to deceive ministers, relatives, and friends. A little deceit outward. A little deceit outward profession will. Often go a long way, but it is impossible to deceive Christ. His eyes are a flame of fire. He sees us through and through. Happy are those who can say, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest we love thee. And such it is. Our Lord knows all things. In response to this act of dissembling, our Lord cuts directly to the heart of the matter, and he says that, well, three things, actually. He says, first, do not labor for the food which perishes. That's in verse 27. What is he speaking about? Well, It's hard to hear him say that and not think back on Solomon. Solomon wrote an entire book on the food that perishes. That book is Ecclesiastes, and at the beginning of that book, Solomon puts forward a question. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? That's actually going to be the theme of the whole book. Uh, you're living in the world, you're working with worldly things, uh, you're putting your hand to the grindstone, yada, yada, yada. What profit comes out of this? Well, right after asking the question, Solomon then proceeds to a poem, which kind of sums up everything we're going to read. One generation passes away, and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever." The sun also rises, and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rose. The wind goes towards the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is that which will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it might be said? See, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. He sums up with these words. There is no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Pretty straightforward. Uh, nothing fills up. Nothing comes to an end. When, when you die, someone's going to have to do the dishes from the funeral it will roll on and on and on uh, there's a sense of utility in these words uh, why are they following Christ he just fed them he fed them miraculously he fed them as a divine miracle but the focus is on the belly which will never be filled just like the eye never has its end of seeing or the ear its ear end of hearing. Uh, don't labor for this kind of thing, says Christ. Rather, labor for the food that endures to eternal life. There is a, a phrase that runs through Ecclesiastes. That phrase is under the sun. It's an interesting Semitic term. When Solomon was writing his book, it was a phrase that indicated what you can see and know. If something is taking place under the sun, you can see it. You can examine it. If something is not under the sun, it's in darkness, and you don't really know what's happening. But the way that Solomon uses it, it basically becomes a synonym for uh, this world in general. We can see and touch and taste and feel this world. Solomon continues to talk about what happens under the sun, but what happens under the sun is a place of vanity. it's, It's a chasing after the wind. He finishes his book with these words. Remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave us. It's a direct statement about eternal life. Solomon is, is thinking about life under the sun. It's going to come to an end. He used several metaphors that talk about death. It's religious language. It comes from various places, but it's all metaphors for, you know, that's all folks. But what happens at that moment is, quote, the spirit returns to God who gave it. A very clear reference in the Old Testament to eternal life. You're going to stand before God one day, and you're not going to be in this world where nothing completes, nothing is finished. Uh, You're not going to be in the place where the eye never had its fill of seeing, the ear never had its fill of hearing. Uh, You're going to enter into another existence before the face of God, the God who knows everything, just like Christ demonstrated by knowing their hearts. You need to not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food to everlasting life. And then, as the third thing he says in response, he tells them where that will come from. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal upon him. So we have... Don't labor for this world, labor for the next world, and I will give you of that next world. I will give you the food that lasts for everlasting life. You have you have eaten the food that hasn't kept you from getting hungry 24 hours later. You have traveled across the Sea of Galilee to find me for this worldly need, and honestly, all of us here will seek out our next meal. So we, we totally understand what they're doing. Uh, if if you had the possibility of eating for free from now on, you'd probably jump at it. So, uh, you know, let, let's not condemn unnecessarily their motives. But Christ, who is seeing from a heavenly perspective, says this is totally empty. You need to really seek me. You're not really seeking me. You came seeking the bread. You need to seek me. I am what will give you life. And then as we go further into this passage, he will say, Eternal life, you're not really seeking that. You are seeking something else. I have often from this pulpit, shared the the Midrash from the Talmud, where the rabbis are talking about the three books of Solomon and how they equate to the uh, three courts of the temple. I would say, stop me if you've heard it, but I know you've heard it, and uh, I'm going to take it in a slightly different direction this time. The, the, the Midrash, is that Solomon gave three books to us. He gave us Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs. And these equate to the various courts of the temple. The outer court, which is also called the Court of the Gentiles, uh, this is where your worldly stuff tends to go on. It's where you bring your sacrifices, and they get sacrificed out there in the outer court. Uh, It's where people actually come to meet and talk, it's a very pragmatic kind of place, and the rabbi said this court equated to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is kind of earthy and very pragmatic. It has to do with trouble in this life and how to deal with this life, and that's where most people are. That's, that's what's on their mind. That's what's on their mind even when they're religious. They're, they're seeking God, really you know, help me get through this life, help me uh, be a better person, uh, help me. help me, you know, help me, help me, standard stuff. Well, the Song of Songs equates to the Holy of Holies. In the Holy of Holies, you have the the covenant seat, and and blazing above it is the Shekinah glory. It's a manifestation of God's glory. Uh, You go into the Holy of Holies, and you're confronted with the passionate, burning love of God, Well, the Song of Songs is a love song, and it is about Solomon and the wife he should have married as opposed to the 999 other ones, but it is a love song. And just like our marriages are symbolic of God with his people, so the love story that's in Song of Solomon is symbolic to the love of God for his people. And so in the Holy of Holies, you have the blazing love of God, the passion that religion ought to be. In the presence of God. But the stinger usually is the the, the inner court, the court of the priests, equates to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes has been interpreted as being very cynical, very non hopeful, being uh, very uh, jaded. Now, that's not really a fair assessment of the book, but it is kind of the way people view it. And the rabbis say, well, that equates to the court of the priests because that's the way the paid religionist people tend to be. Uh, they tend to be more cynical than the people out in the outer court. They tend to be less believing uh, the fish rots from the head, and Ecclesiastes equates the priest. And that's usually the stinger. But think about that outer court for a second. That's as much of a stinger if you get right down to it. Proverbs is seen as earthy and pragmatic and day-to-day. Again, it's not a fair assessment of the book of Proverbs. If you read the book of Proverbs and you really read it and study it, it glorifies God just like any other book. But that's kind of the perception of it. And the rabbis were saying, you know, the common man... Why is he religious? He is religious because he gets something out of it. He is religious because he is entering into a transaction where he wants to get the better part. Uh, He is going to placate the gods, or he is going to placate the God. He is here pragmatically. He is here because of what he can benefit. And he's really not here because of the passionate love of God and the desire to glorify his maker, He's just thinking about how to get through day by day. How is that any better than what's happening in the court of the priests? How is a mere pragmatism any better than a jaded cynicism? Or is it just kind of different by degree? Uh, Jesus is dealing with people who are as the rabbis described, just let me get through the day, and this seems like a very good thing. Christ could be the source of food for us. But Christ directs them to the food that lasts for eternal life. But he uses the phrase labor. And what are you doing when you labor? Well, you're working. And the crowd catches in on that word, and so they ask him in the next verse, um, what are the works of God? What, What works should we do? Loaded into that very pregnant line is a huge swath of theology that they are kind of getting and kind of not. The background to this is the first covenant and the second covenant. In the first covenant, God creates man and says, do everything that I command you and you will live. There is the second covenant that is given, which is the covenant of grace. Uh, I will send the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head. But you have a, a republication of the covenant of works, the first covenant, In Moses, where the people of God are told, do all of this and you will live, Uh, it's built on the second covenant, but it's in essence the first covenant. And Israelites have all their lives heard about working the works of God, and if you do this, you will live. By the time of Christ, there's almost no emphasis on divine grace at all or the second covenant, and this keeps coming out in the Gospels. It comes out in like the rich young ruler who comes to Christ and says, sir, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So there's an emphasis on doing works. And Christ answers him and says, you know, well, you know the commandments, honor your father and mother, don't murder. Uh, He gives him the stuff of the Mosaic Covenant, which does have the promise if you do it perfectly, you will live. And he says, well, I've done this all my life. And then Christ says, go and sell all your possessions. You know the story. But underlying this question is the crowd's misunderstanding of the covenants and how you receive justification from God. But they're, they're standing on the foundation of the word that Christ used, labor. So very naturally, they turn to him and say, well, what are the works of God? What labor am I supposed to do? And Christ returns and says to them, in verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in whom he has sent. You believe. You have faith. This is the work of God. It's not exactly what they were expecting. They were expecting the same kind of answer that Christ gave to the rich young ruler, uh, these are the commandments that you should do. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Well, Christ responds in that case, uh, love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, just like we confess. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is what they were expecting. But Christ says the work of God is to believe in him whom he has sent. He uses the term faith because belief and faith are the same word. It's just the difference between the noun and the verb. You have to have faith. You have to believe. Well, what is faith? Well, if you were to jump over to the Amplified version, the Amplified gives you a pretty good definition of faith. There we would read, Jesus replied, This is the work, service, that God asks of you, that you believe in the one he has sent that you cleave to, trust, rely on, and have faith in his messenger. So what is the work of God? It's that you absolutely trust in me. You let go of everything else. You trust in me alone. You cleave to, you rely upon, you put your entire hope in me. That's what faith is, which makes sense because Christ has just said don't labor for the bread that perishes. Labor for the food that lasts to eternal life, which I will give you, right? That itself is a statement that you should have faith because he's giving it to you. He's handing it over to you. So they ask, what is the works that, that we should do to, to earn God's favor effectively? He says, believe on me. This is the, this is the work of God. And it is the opposite of works. We have two books in the New Testament that belabor that principle to the nth degree. I mean, you, have, you can't walk away from reading Romans or reading Galatians and understand anything but faith and works are polar opposites. So when Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe in me, he's clearly commending faith in himself. This is the food that will give you eternal life. And as I read in context, he's going to beat that whole. Uh, I'm the bread, I'm the wine, I give life, have faith in me. But he still uses the term the work of God. The work of God is to have faith in him who he sent. I have heard Arminian preachers. Say, the Bible says that faith and works are totally different, but faith is a singular work, and so therefore it is the one work that you do that gives you justification. You have faith, therefore you're justified. If I were an Arminian minister, I would beat this verse to death. Because Christ says, this is the work of faith, this is the work of God that you have faith. But, again, I would have to throw away Romans, and I'd have to throw away Galatians. I would have to throw away all the passages in Scripture, like Ephesians 2, that say, uh, God saves you by grace through faith, and this is not yourself, it is the gift of God. I'd have to get rid of all that. Uh, So, being that I'm not an Arminian, I'm not going to beat that to death, um, how am I going to understand this? Well, I think the principal way of understanding it is to understand what faith does. Faith is not a magical thing. If you have faith in something that isn't worthy, you can have faith in it all day long, and you're going to be very disappointed. Faith does not generate magical effect. We have faith in Jesus of Nazareth. We have faith in the person. And the scripture clearly shows us in various places that our faith in him incorporates us into him. I mean, think about how many times Paul says in him, in him, in him, in him, all through the epistles. We come into him And the work of God is that we have faith in Christ. Christ works all the works of God. So in reality, faith does give us every holy work that justifies us before the Father. We receive upon us, to use the words from Romans, uh, the righteousness of Christ. We, We are given his every holy work. And so... Uh, is faith the work of God? Well, yeah, because you are connected with the works of Christ, which are perfect, which keep the first covenant. And so I think that that is the the major punch. That is what Christ is saying when he says the work of God is to have faith in, in me. But there is still the term work, which suggests you're doing something. And In reality, you don't have faith without exercising it. Uh, Faith is a gift from God, but it is something that you participate in and do. And if you have faith, you're going to find it to be decidedly tiring and troublesome at various points. In Bible study this morning and in the men's discipleship group last week, We looked at a phrase that Paul wrote in 1 Timothy, where he's commending to Timothy that you should, quote, exercise yourself towards godliness. Godliness uh, means to be like God, but it also means to be with God. Basically, it's everything to do with God. Godliness is about God and being in his light and being like him. Exercise yourself towards godliness, for bodily exercise profits a little. It does. It, you know, go to the gym and it's actually beneficial. But godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God, who is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. So you'll notice at the end of this passage, Paul says the reason why we exercise ourselves towards godliness is because we trust in the living God, who is the savior of all men. So the term faith is here. We we exercise towards godliness because we have faith, and the reward of godliness in this world is to suffer reproach. That's not really the kind of language that a salesman would want Paul to use. He would want Paul to say, if you have faith in God, people will slap you on the back and applaud you and say, what a better person you have become. Uh, It is just amazing the faith in God you have. It is really great that you're growing in godliness. No, Uh, for this end, we suffer reproach, says Paul. If you read the ESV, or the NASV, or something like that, that phrase won't be present. Rather, you will read, for this end we labor and strive. But those translations are translated off a tiny little number of ancient texts we have. The thousands upon thousands of our texts read, we labor and suffer reproach. The terms are nowhere near close, so somebody has looked at some term and said, I don't really, how can that be? That, that can't be it. Uh, Is it likely that somebody looked down there and said, hey, look, we labor and strive. We've got to change that to get reproach. Or is it more likely that some scribe read the text and said, I get punished for good deeds? Well, God can't mean that. In his next letter to Timothy, Paul will write, all who wish to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And there is no textual variant there. It is a continuing theme. All who wish to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All those who exercise themselves to godliness because they have faith will suffer reproach. In this world, faith itself, if it is legitimate and the gift of God, It will be punished by the world, and you're going to feel yourself very tired at the end of the day. You're going to have been swimming through a demonic world. Faith is a gift of God, but you're going to work it. Faith is the gift of God, but you're going to walk through this world with it, and you're going to exercise. And let me tell you, I've been going to the gym now for a couple of years exercises work don't particularly like it that's the very essence of it what is the work of God it is to have faith in Jesus Christ that will be labor in this world but it is the gift of God it is not of men's labor and Christ is commending them away from the labor of man what was Solomon's initial question What benefit does a man have from all his labor that he labors under the sun? The answer to what man benefits from all his labor, all the works of his hands, is it is vanity. It is vanity of vanities. It is a chasing after the wind. Man gains nothing by his works nothing at all. And in Ecclesiastes, nothing means nothing. Not even temporal benefit really is lasting. So if not even temporal benefit is lasting, how can you assume divine benefit will be lasting? That the labor of your hands will purchase you something. It doesn't even purchase your ear coming to the point where it says, okay, I've heard enough. Or your eye saying, that's no, fine, I've seen everything. Christ is pointing to himself and saying, I am the bread of life. I am what gives eternal life. The term eternal life is both length and also quality. Uh, Don't labor for this world. Labor for me, and I will give you myself. There is, however, something that is very, very addictive about that outer court men without the gift of the spirit men who are not given the gift of belief the only place they're going to go is the outer court we're we're drawing this sermon to a close at verse 32 but consider verse 30 and 31 compared to verse 32 and 33 They're responding to Christ, who has offered himself, and they say, therefore they say to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Hint, hint, nudge. The goal is to get another miracle of the bread, and that's what they're after. They're after another free meal. They're after another brief satiation that will not solve their problems ultimately. And after they have heard Christ, Christ will say this to them. Then Jesus says to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus says, I will give you life. I will give life to the world. I have come down from heaven. I am better than the manna that God sprinkled during Moses' time. I I give actual life. And they're going, "Um, food? Bread? Their God is their belly. Remember Paul writing That really is where humanity is without divine intervention. And uh, as I read further, you heard Christ use very Calvinistic language. No man can come to me unless the Father draws him. Everyone the Father gives me, I will give eternal life to, but not everyone gets drawn. And in fact, when we get to verse 60 to 66, uh, Jesus is going to be about the greatest Calvinist you're ever going to meet. He emphasizes the gift of faith and the fact that even if you're a disciple, if you don't have faith, you're not really saved. Um, They can't get by their physical desires. It's frustrating, but it's true. Without the grace of God, men are going to think in that pragmatic way that those rabbis all those years ago were talking about. People want to live day to day, they don't think about the future. They just want to get by. They just want their problems solved. God might be able to do that. Let's turn to God. In Psalm 73, the psalmist says, when I was thinking like that, I was merely a brute beast before you. So lying in Psalm 73, the psalmist was complaining about the fact that the wicked have all the best toys. He says, I was thinking like an animal. Uh, it's not really a slam on animals, but how many animals do you know that plan for the future? Animals tend to live for the day. They, they think about now. They don't think about consequences. Trust me, I've lived with the cats long enough to know they don't think about consequences. They're just living for this very moment. Well, effectively, that's who these, quote, disciples, that's who they are. And that's who most people are that will assemble today in worship. They're not bad people, but the way... People think about bad people. They're just pragmatic. They want God to do something for them in this world. No thought about the future. No thought about eternal life. Not even seeking it. God is offering them the glories of Jesus. He is offering them eternal life in the Lord Christ, a life worth living, a life with the Son of Man, a life that will go on and on forever in glory in a kingdom that shall have no end, and they're just thinking about food. If that isn't you, thank God today. The Father has drawn you to Christ. You have been delivered from seeking that next meal. You know the glories of God because God has opened your eyes. And Jesus has said, all that the Father gives me I won't lose them, and I will raise them up on the last day. That is a little better than a mere handout.